I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Not that we're speaking from Ephesians 4, but I think it would be good that we read these verses each night before we began, because we keep making reference to them, and then we're going to go to a few pages over to Philippians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 4, and for the sake of uh, connection, look back up in chapter 3. So Ephesians 3, and Paul says at the end of chapter 3, and again, those who were here last night, we read this. He says, now unto him that is able, verse 20, to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, unto him, glory, word B, it's in italics, unto him, glory in the church. That is a fabulous subject. Glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. And here's the verse. Endeavoring. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond Turn a few pages to Philippians chapter 2. Last night, without going back into it, we had, <clears throat> we had read in Philippians chapter 1 the last four verses. And we try to get across this, uh, this concept, this idea that Paul was trying to introduce them. He really was trying to get to this subject that we're looking at. But in chapter 1, verses 27 to the end, after he speaks about himself and how he had two great desires to, to depart and be with Christ, which was far better, but to stay and be with them, which was more needful, he jumps into verse 27 and he talks about their conduct and he talks about being unmovable in your stand. I had a couple of views last night. And then he talks about being united in one spirit and one mind and we went and looked at how to be upholding one another with a purpose. So we'll leave that. And I want to look at chapter 2. Because now we have the why. And so we're just going to try and present this tonight as this. Why? Why is it so important to God? Why is it so important to the Lord Jesus? Why is it so important to the Spirit? We're going to see that. Why is it so important to Paul as this one who was so concerned for his beloved brethren, Christians, those that he saw reached in Philippi? Why is it so important that there be unity in the church. Unity in the fellowship. Why? You know, and, and last night we had, we had made comments of uh, this idea that the Christians here in Philippi, they, they, were, they were special to Paul. And you'd almost have to go back and, and read the story in Acts, how he was called, how he went there, how God moved, how Satan opposed. And you go through the whole history of Philippi, you come here, you read these four chapters, you get the idea that this is a unique place. Um, Paul had very positive feelings towards the people at Philippi. They weren't feelings of negativity. He didn't say, I'm coming to you, or, or, or I'll come to you with a rod, like he had said other places. And there really wasn't a whole lot of bad stuff going on here as far as doctrine and theology. But I want to I just, I'm going to breeze through a couple of verses here. You don't have to turn to them. They're right here in these two chapters. I want you to get a little example of, of what Paul says in his positive feelings, emotions, towards those that he loved. 
So in chapter 1, verse 3, he says this. He said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Isn't that neat? He's, he's basically saying, you know, every time I think about you, I'm thankful. Uh, what I want to try and present to you in the next two or three minutes is a tender heart of compassion by this man, Paul. And he's going to transfer that to them so they can transfer that to each other. So in verse 5, he says, uh, every time I pray for you, he says, it is with joy. The guy's in prison. The man is locked up. And he says, every time I pray for you, it is with joy. Verse uh, 5, he says, verse 4, verse 5, he says, I'm grateful for your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, you've got such, such consistency and, and such endurance. And you'll notice in verse 8, he says, I long for you all with the affection of Christ. Now, you, you catch those emotions, catch those feelings there? There was a genuine love. It was a bond between the Apostle Paul and the believers of this fellowship. I, I, wanted, I want you to know that up front. This isn't just some cold, hard, pick up a quill, dip in the ink, and scratch down on some parchment paper, roll it up, and send it with a courier. There was real affection here. Verse 19 of this chapter 1, he says, I know your prayers shall result in my deliverance and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He keeps going, right? He's commending them for their love. He's commending them for their prayers and their, their endurance, their consistency and their faith and all the joyous memories he had at the times, the little time that he spent there. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, You have always obeyed, and I want you to continue. So he, he's really commending them for their obedience. We're going to see that a little more. They had a pattern of that in the past. When he was there, they obeyed him. They obeyed what he taught them, and he wanted them to continue in that. If you went to chapter 3, in verse 16, he says, Let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. In other words, he says, uh, I'm commending you for the high standard of spiritual commitment. He said, I poured Christ into you, and you trusted him. He says, and you have a commitment to the spiritual things that I taught you. And he said, that has become the pattern of your life. You, you get the, the picture here? If we move to chapter 4, verse 10, he says this. He said, I greatly rejoice in the Lord, or I, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last you have revived your concern for me. And one only has to look at chapter 4, and when the opportunity was given, they had sent a gift to Paul. And then he says, and it's not the first time. They cared about him. So it was a mutual affection. All of his thoughts for them were positive. All of his feelings were this warm and affirming aspect. They, this is something I really enjoy. They most likely had good, rich, quality leaders. The, so in, in, in the very first verse, he says, you know, about, uh, he's addressing the overseers and the deacons, and he's, go, he, he's uh, <clears throat> commending them, you might say, as, uh, as noble servants, not only to the Lord, but on behalf of that fellowship. That's a, that's a, that's a very high commendation. Verse 9 indicates that they had a real love, which only needed to abound, he's, remember he said, abound more and more. And it was already about. In verse 19, again, he reminds them that they were prayerful. So it's very obvious that the Christians there at Philippi were doctrinally sound. This was a quality bunch. They had not gone astray in terms of theology. They didn't need to be correct, uh, corrected on theology. 
There was no immorality in the church like you had at Corinth. There was uh, just, just basically this was a wonderful group of Christians. But, now I want you to just hang there. All this emotion, all these wonderful feelings. Paul looks back in the memories and he says, oh, he says, I long for you. And, he, and all of this, and he says, but, now I'm going to paraphrase, in spite of all of that, there was, how do I say this? There was lurking in that fellowship. There was lurking in that church a snake, as there is everywhere. There was moving, possibly, amongst them, this ugly, slimy snake with deadly, poisonous venom. And that snake is the snake of disunity, discord. Poisoned many churches, many fellowships of Christians. Paul had seen it. He had to correct it. He went there in other places, many occasions. He, he wants, in all of his expressions of joy, in all of his affirming characterizations of this group, there was still, in the shadows, this issue of grave concern to him. And uh, it really should be a concern for all of us. Now, I don't know about everyone here, but over the past 30 years, I have seen it. I've got to tell you, it's disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. He takes this letter to the saints at Philippi, and he bookends it. Now, we mentioned this last night. He bookends it in chapter 1 and in chapter 4 with the same thing. With this, this concept of wanting them to be uh, standing firm, he says, in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 4, first couple of verses, same things. And he, and he pulls up those two women's names, and he says... Work in harmony, he says. Be united. So I want to I try and get something across here um, that this is a plea. It is a plea from the heart, the tender heart, of Paul the Apostle in prison, not knowing if he would ever see them again, and he wants to give them this plea for unity. But there's more to give them the pattern. So I want to take a little bit of time tonight, and I want to look at this plea and this pattern uh, for unity. You know, if you were to move around like some of us have in the past and, and do, um, there's two things that always come up. And one of them is if you're talking to uh, leaders, feeders, teachers, guides, um, elders, overseers, there's something that they, there's two things that bother them. And one of them is uh, apathy. You know, they, they don't like it. And they don't know what to do about it. And I, I've been in a lot of places, and one brother said to me, and he was using, I've heard the illustration before, he said, you know, he said, I just looked and I get such apathy. He said, you ever hear the man that asked the other brother? He says, tell me. He says, can you define apathy? And the other brother said, ah, oh, who cares? That's it. He just defined it, didn't even know it. And so there is this, this insidious, infectious thing that affects believers everywhere. It affects all of us. This thing called apathy. But the thing that is greatly feared, that thing that I see, and that thing that other workers who see God work and move and save and reach, and, and they're taught and they, they see the truth of, of linking themselves with the risen Christ. There's baptism, and then there's persecution from family and, and all this, and they gather to Christ and there's a warmth. And in that fellowship, this snake 
lifts up its ugly head. What is it? Disunity. That's the thing to fear. Because the outcome of it is absolutely devastating. And let me take a step further and say this. If you take all the epistles that Paul wrote to a church, and I'm not much talking about any, you know, the pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus and to Philemon, but if you take, starting in Romans, and you go right through to Thessalonica, you know what you'll find? It's, it's everywhere. This subject is everywhere. Paul writes about it all the time. If we took the time, I could name them down to you, and you'd, you'd recognize these. And in fact, Romans chapters 14 and 15 is practically the, the whole makeup of the chapters. Trying to make sure that these believers live in harmony and unity. It should be, for those of us who are in any position of leadership in a fellowship, it should be our constant prayer. You know, when God worked out west and we saw what God was doing, and one by one, some of those folks left, and they, they left their home with great persecution. It was, it was such a warming thing. Sometimes in our prayer meetings, and a lot, of, a lot of folks were working. They had chores. They had jobs once they left. It was a lot of difficulty. But we had a little rented room at the back of a mall, an office section of the mall. And we would squeeze in there on a Wednesday night for prayer meeting. Prayer meeting, no less. Now, prayer meeting, and a lot of people were working. And there were 70, 80, 90 people stuffed in the room. And we had a grease board on the wall. And one of the men would go up there, and he'd say, before this meeting begins, what is it you want to pray about? And you know what the overwhelming thing was that was written across the top of that grease board? Unity. You know why? Because coming out of six or five or six different communities, mainly five at the early part, were Christians, newly saved believers, and they were in that community called a, a colony. They lived there, and they always looked at that colony as substandard. We go to this place, you know, and we go to this place, and that's how they thought. We drive Fords. You poor guys are stuck with old Dodges. You're poor. Our colony grossed 42 million last year. You guys, we had to help you out with a loan. Now, that's how they used to live. But when they came to Christ, and they moved off, and now they're all together in one little room. has a way of, of lifting up its ugly head. So I want to I wanna try and uh, make something understood here, and I'm going to try and um, think about this today, try to illustrate this. Let me, let me just, I'll say it this way. Um, unity is not external. Now let me try and, and say this this way. It is not a, uh, an outside thing. It's not an outward thing. It's an internal thing. Unity is, uh, when the Bible speaks about it, when the, when, the, when the scriptures speak about what it means to be united, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're going to look at that again in a second. He's, Paul is writing about an inward spiritual reality. Not an outward unity, but an inward unity. He's talking about something, now listen, catch this. He is talking about something that is internally compelling, not Externally controlled. Now I was sitting out the car there for a few minutes and I pulled a highlighter out of my Bible. I'm going to do with the highlighter. I'm going to say this again. The scripture speaks about unity in the fellowship. It is not talking about something that is externally controlled. It is internally compelling. Let me, let me take that a little bit further. It, it's, 
It's more heartfelt. It's, it's not based on a creed of some sort. It's, uh, it's not particularly verbal as much as it is emotionally and spiritual. I'm going to show this to you in a minute. It's the union of hearts and minds and souls in a common cause. And we saw that in verse 27 through 30. It was a purpose. The faith of the gospel, which includes a lot of things which we didn't get a chance to cover last night. It's not people just being united because they're in the same container. Now catch this. It's not people being united because they're in the same bowl or walls. It's not because they're in the same container. It's Christians, it's believers who are literally attracted to each other because they're pulled by the same power. Did you catch that? Now let me try and illustrate this to you. Um, when I was a kid, it wasn't that long ago for me, but maybe it's long ago to a lot of young ones, but we, had, we used to go to a store in the States called Woolworth. Did you have Woolworths up here? Yeah, they're all gone. And I was the youngest in our family, and my mother would take me oftentimes, maybe once a week, and we'd go downtown, where the town we lived in, it was a Woolworths. Mom, stop at Woolworths. I love the toys, you know, all the stuff in there. I like, I like playing with the toy guns and stuff. But they had a table there with bags of marbles, and they were like a mesh fishnet bag, small fishnet, and I used to love to get those cheap, like 50 cents for a bag of marbles. I always wanted to buy a bag of marbles. We'd play with them and did all kinds of, my older brother was shopping with us, thank God, all that stuff, but. You know, it was nice to buy these marbles. You know, if you held that bag of marbles up, all you had to do anywhere was just pull on the fabric. What happened to the marbles? Everywhere. All over the, the kitchen floor, and my mother would don't move, you know, you'll fall. They're everywhere because they were being held by an external container. Did you catch that? Now, now that's a, this is a visual picture. Now, we had a teacher in, uh, it was, I think it was grade 8, his name was Lavery. We called him Slavery. He was a taskmaster, master. And I'll never forget what he did one day. He was illustrating something about magnetic field. And he pulled out a bowl, a clear bowl. And this bowl was, I don't know if it was glass or plastic, but I saw what was in that bowl. And I wanted it. Because it was steel ball bearings. And I had a wrist rocket. If you young guys know what a wrist rocket is, we used to go out and scroll and rabbits with a wrist rocket. We could never find these ball bearings, you know. We used to find old metal parts and break them apart and get those ball bearings, and you could shoot those things. And there he had this bowl of ball bearings. And in his illustration, which doesn't really matter, he pulled out a magnet, big, strong magnet, and he stuck it in with his fist right into that bowl. We watched him do it. And he's explaining, teaching what he's teaching. And when he pulled his hand out, all the magnets, all the, all the ball bearings were all together. No container. It's an easy illustration, right? But what was happening there was each steel ball bearing was being pulled to each other by a force. Now I want you to keep this in your thinking, okay? What a homely illustration of the fellowship. When, what Paul is getting at here is Unity in the fellowship, this subject that he's brought up in, in chapter 1, and he's going to touch on here in a very tender way, and I hope in the next few minutes that you'll see it's tender. And I want to say this to those that are young. If you're under 40, I want you to get this. I hope I don't offend you. I don't mean to. 
Paul did not say any of this to offend anybody. This was tender. I have a, a feeling that I think he wrote this slowly in prison with tears. These believers, he wanted to know something. You are being pressed, he says, pressed against each other because you are all being magnetized by the same force, by the same drawing power, and that drawing power is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the internal unity. We are pulled to each other. We're pulled through each other by the power that pulls. And that power is Christ. Now, what Paul wanted to see in Philippi was not marbles in a bag, but he wanted them to be like understanding this. We are Christians, and we are drawn by the power of Christ to each other because we're drawn to Christ through each other. I've seen it. And you have too. You've also, unfortunately, seen the other side. And this, this is that inward, to use that term, magnetic unity. It's so essential for the local fellowship. It's so, it's so essential that Paul is getting at. And it's essential for two things. It's essential for joy, and it's essential for effectiveness. If there's not unity in the fellowship, there's little joy, and there's little effectiveness. You might have a little bit of happiness here and there, that comes from happenings. There's little joy, and there's little effectiveness. Real, lasting, eternal effectiveness. Now, just stop for a second. We read in Ephesians 4, and we read it last night, these words. Endeavor, you know, to keep the unity of spirit. That word, I, I was telling something, I love words. I like studying words and pulling it up and looking at that word. What does it mean? Where else is it written? What this word is? I'll try and pronounce it. It almost looks Italian. It says spadazzo. And the word spadazzo means make every constant effort. So when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he's getting past the first three chapters, and they're in Christ, they're in Christ, they're in Christ, and now he's talking about a, a worthy vocation to which you are called, and he says this, he says, I want you to endeavor, I want you to make every constant effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He said, it makes, and it takes tremendous effort. You know Why? Unity is extremely fragile because we're people. We are. We're people. So Paul writes into Philippi as good as they were and, and says that this danger, this lurking danger of this snake-like type thing, that's just an illustration, is a tragedy. Now, I want, I want us to get this, this picture that he's going to give them a blueprint. I, I hate to use that term, but we understand that. He's going to give them a picture here, and it flows out of chapter 1, and he's... Uh, how do I say this? Why? Let's just get right to it. Why should we seek unity? So let's read it. I'm going to read it in a different version. Verse 1, Philippians 2. If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ... If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, I'm not going to get past that, if at all, but let me read the next few. Do nothing from selfishness, verse 3. And empty conceit, but 
with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The heart of those four verses is very simple. Being of the same mind. That's the, that's the main emphasis that he's getting at here. He's touched on it back in chapter 1, and now he's going to hit them with the why. Why? Why is it so important for them to be of one mind? For all of this, right, for, to, for every church that Paul ever saw planted, and for every church that he wrote to, like Colossae, that he was never at, why is it that every time he picks up his pen, it permeates, and then it comes right out in actual words? Why? Why is it important for us to see this maintained in the fellowship? And I'm just going to give it to you very simple. I think it's very simple, because I see it right here, but... I want to try and explain this because I, want, I don't want you to miss this. Because I struggle with this. As a young believer, uh, reading through one of the first epistles that I studied was Harry Ironside's book on Philippians. A little thin, hardcover, dark, burgundy book. I remember reading it. I got a lot out of it. But I remember reading it and thinking to myself, if, if, it says, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ. I remember looking at it. I was just a kid. I was 15 or so, I never had an accident with my hand, and I was spent a lot of time in the house, and I had all these books I was reading, and I thought to myself, if there is encouragement in Christ, I had it. Seriously. I remember as a 15-year-old boy waking up in the recovery room, having these fingers chopped off in the machine, and laying there thinking to myself, whatever am I going to do? And thinking this, when I get to heaven, I'll get them back. <laughs> That's what I thought. It doesn't really matter. I... I remember looking at them, I thought they were all swollen like sausages. And I'm looking at them, well, one good thing is they can never get cut off again. So I try to look at the positive. I thought, in the eternal aspect of things, I'll get them back. And you know what? I was encouraged in Christ. And that incident, that little incident in my life, drove me to want to know more. Because now I couldn't dribble a basketball. And, and now I couldn't do this, and now I couldn't do that. And one of the brethren came to me and he said, uh, you're, you're new in the fellowship here. Would you be willing to speak to the children? I said, I'm scared. He said, would you try it? I said, give me a few months. A few months went by, the weather got nice. And we all went down to Central Park in East Boston, Mass, and we're all standing there. My Sunday school teacher was Frank Procovio, Paul B.'s wife's father. And he stood behind me. I didn't know what he was going to do. And we're standing there, we're all singing. And after we finished singing, somebody would just step out and start to speak. And there was about 100 people sitting in the park benches. And I'm 15. And I'm standing there like this, you know, and I'm looking at And he walks behind me, we finish singing, and he hit his knee behind my knee. You know, he fall. And I fell, and he pushed me. And I didn't know what to say. So I said, the Bible says, as loud as I could, my voice was louder then, Romans 5 and 6, Paul went, and I told him how I got saved. And I was literally dripping sweat. It was June or July. And I stepped back in, I thought to myself, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> now, you see what I'm getting at here? Is there's, there's something about when you start to study the scriptures and a word like this hits you and you say, if there's encouragement in Christ, I am encouraged in Christ. I, I want to just stop for a second and say this. Whenever you read an if in the Bible, look at the context. Because there's a number of different ifs. This, well, let me say it this way. There is an if that means if, and it is true. 
And then there's an if that is if as the fact is. Or if and it might be true. Now that sounds confusing, but in the language that the New Testament was written in Greek, there's a first class, second class, and a third class conditional if. So when it was translated, it wasn't if in their language, when it was translated by the translators, they put down if. But really the word is not if, it's really since or because. So I, I want to look at it that way. and Because that's the way it actually is. So what Paul is doing, because these words like this, if, it threw me a curveball. I'm thinking to myself, there's no if here. There is encouragement in Christ. So here he goes. He says, I, he says I'm not speaking about some distant doctrine. It's not some distant, far-off, misty, foggy theology. Oh, somewhere out there, somebody has encouragement in Christ. No, no. This was a real-time, present, spiritual experience. And so Paul's going to take these four things, and we're going to look at them for the next few minutes, these four things, and he's going to use them as inspiration. He's going to use them as a compelling force. Now listen, I want to take this, and I would like to inspire you with it. It has nothing to do with me. And I have a tendency to be gruff. I don't, I don't want to be gruff at all, please. I know a few years ago, at our conference back home, we rent this school, and uh, there was a fire. No, we didn't see the fire. It was underneath the school in the lines, and we actually had to cancel the conference for the evening. And uh, the speakers that were going to speak in the gospel were like, what do we do now? We're all ready. And so they, they said to me, they said, you've got a loud voice. Let everybody, 300 or so people, let everybody know that we're going down to the hall. We're going to have the gospel in the hall. And uh, so I stood up and I just, boom, I just bellowed it out. And my wife comes to me and she said, I wouldn't come to that meeting. You were gruff. You're mean. You're barking. Man, I felt bad. So if I'm that way, I'm going to ask you to forgive me in advance, okay? Because what Paul is, is saying here, he says, because there is encouragement in Christ. Let this be your first, he says, compelling inspiration. And the word encouragement here, again, I like words, and I'll, I'll try and say it, it's the word paraclesis. And it means to come alongside. Come alongside and help someone. Really, it's the, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. That's it's introduced to the disciples. If we had the time, we'd go back to the upper room ministry, John 13 through 17. The Lord introduces. And when he introduces to them in their language, they understood it. That he was leaving and one was coming. And this one that was coming was a comforter. And he was one who was going to be able to come alongside. And we're going to see that more because this verse is broken up into four groups. The first two things is directly about Christ. And the second one links to it. The next two things is directly about the Spirit of God. And the second one after that links to it. So we're going to look at this. Because there is encouragement in Christ. He's telling this and he says, you're in Christ, you've trusted him, and you have benefited from that union through the intended encouragement, exhortation, counsel, and help that you have received. And what he's saying here is, the Lord Jesus Christ has so consistently and so faithfully helped you. This is how I ought to respond. You say, how's that? To make sure in the fellowship that I'm in. The unity that he greatly desires. Being of the same mind. If the great blessing of the encouragement of the Lord Jesus, if the great blessing of his constant forgiveness, of his, of his constant strength and, and wisdom, and his constant blessing and, and grace, if that means anything to me, and I, I really 
impulse is that I really should respond by endeavoring with others to be of the same mind. Now let me just stop and say this. Maybe you're here tonight and you say to yourself, I don't know that. I, I, I don't know if I've ever experienced the encouragement of Christ. I was sitting long bench. I was the third one in from this side when for the first time in my life I got the encouragement of Christ. And this same man was writing and he was saying these words, while we had no strength at that time, Christ died for the ungodly. And when I saw that, and when I realized I had been trying to get saved for, for days, weeks, and stumbling over the everything, when I realized that, Dale, you're the ungodly one. You're the one that Christ hung on a cross for. I got the greatest encouragement I ever got. He died for me. I remember putting my head down, 1969. And I said, thank you, Lord. What an encouragement. Have you ever had that? Maybe you're here tonight and you've never experienced that. Maybe you've had a religious experience. I had one of those. I was out in the living room. I wanted to be saved. I was six or seven or so. And my parents were there and the lights were low, you know, and I pulled a comb out of his pocket. And this is a gift. And take the gift, you know. I was a child. And I told everybody after that, I got saved last night. Oh, what an experience. I took the gift. I had nothing but a comb. It was my comb now. My father dared not take it back. I moved the illustration. I remember seeing that comb in my bureau. I didn't have salvation. I had a comb. I didn't have the encouragement of Christ. And now Paul is writing him and he says, because there is, he says, because you've enjoyed the encouragement of Christ, he says, I want you in Philippi. You've all known each other, whether you're the lady selling purple down by the river or whether you're the Philippian jailer who knows how to use a whip with you and your house, all of you together. He says, I want you to know something. He says, you have known the encouragement of Christ. And since you do, and since it is the heart of Christ to lift up his heart to heaven, John 17, verse 11, 22, and 23, he said words like this. He said, Father, I pray that they may be one. The world may know that you and I are one three times over or more. So precious to the heart of the Lord Jesus that Christians live in a community where the fellowship and the unity is fostered, not fired up in disunity. Very, very precious to the heart of God. The influence of the Lord Jesus on our lives. He says, because you have received this encouragement, because you can look back to that moment of salvation, and he says, take it personally. He says, he really would like you. And Paul is he's saying it tenderly. He says, he would really like you to, to give back to him what is due for what he has done. And he would love for you to be united. I want to take it a step further. And I might not get far enough, but I hope you don't miss this. You and I that know Christ have come into a relationship. And I know that sounds trite. I know that sounds like a cliche. But it's true. Very true. We have come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ at great cost. Now, keep this in mind. That relationship is extremely precious. It's also very tender. 
I have become one with Christ. I have been made, and you have been made, an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. Romans 8. Fabulous truth. I remember we spoke in Romans 8, and we got to that passage, and we're going down through verses 15, 16, and 17, and I looked in the audience, and there are people there, and they're wiping the tears. You know why? Because where they live, they own nothing. Everything belonged to everybody else. And when we were teaching this concept that you have become an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ and everything that's His is yours and future glory is yours. And as we, as we went through that, the tears were flowing. It's a beautiful thing to realize that I have become an heir with Christ, a joint heir. And then he goes on and he says here, you know, he says, this church at Philippi or this church at Ephesus, he has purchased it with his own blood. He said it's precious. And when I bring in disunity and discord and discontent and any other dis you want to put with it, when I bring that into a fellowship, what am I doing? I am actually sinning against the relationship. We could take time if we had it to use illustrations for that. We won't take that time. There's um, every reason here for Paul to say we need to be compelled and make sure that we be inspired that we maintain our unity in the fellowship because it's so precious and so dear to the heart of the Lord Jesus. Let's, let's look at the next one. He says, because there is consolation of love. What does he mean? I stumbled over this. So you've got to do word studies, right? The word here for consolation or comfort is the word, and I'll try and pronounce it, it's the word paramuthion. <laughs> that sounds strange, huh? But the word actually means this, and I like this, because I have four grandchildren, and I often try and do this with them. But the word means gentle cheering. Gentle cheering. So one of my grandsons, you, you try and learn their personalities, and one of them, is he, he gets red-faced really easy, you know, like this, and the other one doesn't care. And so I, I had to try and gently cheer them in the right way. And I thought about that when I was studying this. Um, it's been translated as the word comfort, but it means this. And there's another uh, a lexicon called mounts. And in it, you'll find something like this. It says, to speak to someone by coming close to his side and whisper in his ear. Now, though all of us can look back, hopefully, if we had... Uh, a, a, very well home life. We can look back to times when our mother, especially, because we spent more time with our mothers. I remember my mother. I remember her reaching, leaning down and, and whispering in my ear, you did a really good job. I mean, now think about that. You just did something, whatever it was, and someone that loves you come close to you, put their arm around you, and they whisper gently in your ear. They gently cheer you. What would you do? Slap them? No. That's encouragement, right? And he goes on here and says, this is consolation, but it's consolation of love. And, and, and we know the word agape. We know, we understand a little bit of what it means. He says, look, he says, because you have been so constantly encouraging your relationship to Christ, you've been so frequently and so often, you've heard this, this gentle cheering of him coming alongside. And that's when you read the scriptures and you, you get to know the Lord Jesus in a little personal way. He's, he's come along and he's, he's whispered in your ear. You're mine. You're mine. 
shouldn't it be a little bit of compelling? It should. It should inspire us. It should compel us. Um, I, I want to try and get this across. If I allow, if I allow myself to be tainted in any way, and I just have to leave that there. I keep looking at this clock. If I allow myself to be tainted in any way, and I bring along discouragement, disunity, or discord, conflict, and I bring that into the fellowship for which Christ has died. I am, I am pro, most, how do I say this? I am displaying the ultimate attitude of ingratitude because this is so precious to him. I'm sinning against the relationship. Um, you, know, you know what a good example of this is? Now, I want you to try and follow this. Just take a second and say this. Remember King David? Now, I know it's a different sin, but, but think about this for a minute. He sinned against Bathsheba, didn't he? He did. He sinned against his wife. He sinned against Uriah. He, he, he sinned against the kingdom of people over, over whom he ruled. He, he sinned against God's revealed law. But then he prayed and cried out to God. And what did he say? He said, against thee, thee only, have I sinned. See, see that connection? So, this aspect of a fellowship of believers in a community that is, that is living to honor the Lord Jesus and living to, to, for the purpose of the, you know, what we read in, in chapter 1 on, on last night. For all of this that's going on, this unity, uh, being of one mind and, and one spirit for the sake of the gospel, all of this, when I do whatever and there's disunity and there's conflict brought in, Real quick, he says this, because there is fellowship of the Spirit, partnership, there's communion, there's sharing. The word there is koinonia. You've probably heard that one. There's a partnership there. He says, because there is fellowship of the Spirit. He says, because you have experienced that, and he says, I, I want you to understand something. He says, the Spirit of God wants unity. Now, I'm looking into the eyes of young people here. Have you ever thought, the Spirit of God is not some fog. And I say that reverently. The Spirit of God is a person. I want that to sit. I want that to sink in. The Spirit of God is a person. If we uh, read a little more, First Corinthians chapter twelve, which is a verse we spend a lot of time on with the believers, it says this: is We have all been baptized by the Spirit into one body, and we've all been made to drink the same self, the self same Spirit. And there's something about, you know, it would be well, worthwhile study to take up ministry a whole week on the Spirit of God. It is such an incredible, lovely subject. You know why? Because we begin to realize there's something that happens the day I come to Christ. There's something that happens that moment on November 5th for me, 1969, when I just simply said, thank you. And things started to change. And things started to show themselves. They never bothered me before, or I never saw them before. All of a sudden, there's a union, there's a partnership, there's fellowship of the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? He brings about that regeneration. The Spirit of God is, is uh, He says, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's in 1 Corinthians 6. I've been sealed by the Spirit. He's become the guarantor, you might say, of our eternal inheritance. I can't lose this. This is beautiful. 
We're empowered and we're enabled for service by the Spirit. We've each been gifted by the Spirit. Listen, there's a list here. I got about 30 things on the list. It's fabulous. He goes on and says this. The Spirit of God is always praying for us with groanings that cannot be uttered in a language only known to the Trinity in which he prays unceasingly for us according to the will of God. That's what the Spirit's doing. He says, because there is fellowship of the Spirit, because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is consolation of his love, and now it's the Spirit, he says, listen, he says, this, this union, this partnership with the Spirit, he says, you're never going to know the end of it. It continues. There's, he's, uh, he's working for our sanctification daily. He's, uh, he's guaranteeing our eternal glory. He's, he's filling us daily. He is producing fruit in us. He's teaching us. He's enabling us, giving us the ability to, to resist temptation. The Holy Spirit has given us the Word of God. That which you hold in your hand, that which you read, and it fills you, and it thrills you, and it instills in you, that which you're able to just lift up holy hands and thank God that He ever thought about me or ever thought about you. That's the work of the Spirit of God. He has given us everything, Paul said, that pertains to life and godliness. And now, I want to disrupt that. That partnership, that fellowship, that union of the Spirit, I will disrupt it by discord. I think we said it last night. Max McLean was sitting over there and he's helping me. And I said, what are the seven things that the Lord hates? It's worth repeating. In Proverbs 6, the first one is this, a proud look. And the last one is, those that sow discord among the brethren. And God looks down at that, and it so saddens the heart. Listen to the next one here. Because there is affection and compassion. These are beautiful words. Because there is affection and compassion. He's plunging deeper now. He's getting into the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's talking about how the Spirit has given us both these things, affection and compassion. What does he mean? What does affection mean? This is uh, hard for us to understand in our vernacular. It's hard for us to stand, understand in our culture. But for them, they understood it. The word is schwankhorn. Yeah, if you have the little computer thing, you push the button. Sometimes my wife says to me, what are you listening to in that office? Little deep, growly voice. Schwankhorn. You know. you know what it means? The gut. See, they, they understood the gut, it's where, they, where you feel, you know. When you're a young guy and you're walking down a corridor in school and that girl that you always wanted to say hello to turns the corner and they say, Oh, hi, Jimmy. <gasps> That's what he's talking about. You feel it here, right? All right, so we, we kind of understand that. And he says, I want you to understand that because there is affection and because there is compassion, and he's talking about the Spirit of God, this, this affection is a feeling. He said it's a deep longing. The Spirit of God has a deep longing affection for you. And he's really piling it on here. He wants them to understand something. This is not just some willy-nilly uh, talk that he's giving them. He wants them to understand something. The Lord Jesus is... He's such... He, there's such an encouragement in Christ. And he says, the consolation and comfort of... His love, he said, but the Spirit of God, because there is affection and compassion from the Spirit of God, 
you know, Romans, Romans 8 says that he's making intercession for us constantly. And we could take a lot of verses and interject them here, but for the sake of time, I, I, and sometimes I wonder. I, uh, we, we did a little Bible study on the Spirit of God where I'm at now, back home in Pennsylvania. And we talked about this, and some said, yeah, that's what we thought. We kind of get this idea that the Spirit of God is this cold, hard kind of aspect of Christianity where, you know, God uses him as a, a holy vehicle to send Christians good things from time to time. And I say that reverently. And a lot of people think that. Well, all the while, we have come into a relationship with the Spirit of God. The Lord Jesus is there. He's encouraging. He's, he's exhorting. There's a, he's ministering and giving grace upon grace upon grace. I don't know if I mentioned this at the conference, but we had a dear brother who passed away recently. A young man. Very young man. Very, very important to our fellowship. I can't even begin to tell you. And I was telling someone in the home, I can't remember where now because I can't, just can't remember, but just today or yesterday. When I talked to him about this aspect that there was no cure for his cancer, he looked at me and there was a man there that said he could pray hard enough and he could get cured, which obviously is not the case. And he looked at me and he said, good for him, good for him. He said, if he, if he prayed hard enough and he cured his cancer, good for him, he said. He said, but I want to tell you something, I'm going to get cured. He said, but for today, he's giving me grace. On January 28th, a few months ago, I stood in front of all those people, and it was hard to speak as his body was right there. And I said this. I said, this man taught me that in John chapter 1 and verse 16, when it says words something like this, of his goodness we have all received grace, replacing grace, grace upon grace. And what I learned from that man is this. Daily he lived, him and his wife, Daily he lived, and he went on and on and on, and he says, and the literature I was talking about was this, in that phrase in literature is, is this, when you stand on the seashore, you watch the wave come in, you can't tell where it ends, and you can't tell where the next one begins, and he said, that's what grace was like, he said, God just showered us with grace, I was telling someone, I think today, his doctor came to me, palliative care, end of life scenario, and I met with him in the corridor, and, and and he came to the funeral, and he came up to me afterwards, and he said, I really enjoyed that grace, replacing grace, replacing grace. He said, you know something? He said, I have a lot of things to offer the people that I take to the end of life. A lot of counsel. He said, there's all kinds of people in our team that can come into the hospital rooms and help the wives and help the husbands and help the children. He said, we had so much to offer them. And he looked at me with tears streaming, and he said, they needed nothing. He said, there was nothing I had that they needed. He said, they had it all. And this man's not a Christian. He said, everything they needed, they had. Except for medicine the last few days to relieve the anxiety because of two or three breaths a minute until the Lord took them home. Can you imagine that? What a testimony. That man saw that a man and his wife lived on the grace of God. By the Spirit of God. This, this aspect of the, the Spirit of God being some hard, cold form of something that we might not understand, it's real. So when, when Paul says here, because there is affection and compassion, what the word compassion means is the tender mercies of God. It's not negative. It's a, it's a tender, 
warm mercy. It's sympathizer, right? It's a beautiful. God has been sympathetic to me. He pours out his grace. It's just a, a fabulous thing. And I'm just trying to, I'm over time here, and I want to wrap this up because there's a lot more that could be said. But everything that Paul is getting at here is based on the goodness of the Lord Jesus. He said, I want this to be your incentive. I want this to be your aspiration and your inspiration. To be of the same mind. Why? Because it's the longing of the Lord Jesus. And it's the Spirit's longing. So when you gather together with believers, whenever and wherever that might be, and you think about this, to use the term, blueprint. What a longing. What what an encouragement. What a what a comfort of love. What, what, a, what a heart of tender compassion and tender mercies. To think there is a God there that not only loved me, He sent His Son for me. I had a man come to me in Seattle a couple months back. I was having meetings out there and he, he walked up to me after a gospel meeting and I used the illustration of God sending His Son into the world. And I, I told a little bit about my son. And uh, he came up to me and he shook my hand and he told me, he says, Mr. Vitali, he says, I want to thank you for sending your son to fight the war on terror and for all he's gone through in Afghanistan. I looked at him and I said, I did not send my son. You heard it wrong. I didn't even want him to go. Matter of fact, I fought him tooth and nail in high school. I said, then he went off to college, became an adult. He said, Dad, I'm going anyways. I said, I didn't send him. I said, that's the beauty of what we've been preaching. God sent his son. And now, for those that rest on him, he says, Listen, he says, this is the encouragement of Christ. This is so wrapped up in the Spirit of God, the one that lives and resides and takes up residence. He says, this is their ministry in our lives. And if I bring discord and disunity and discontent and conflict into a fellowship for whom he has died, I am sinning against relationship. And he didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't beating them over the head with a two-by-four. It wasn't that he's trying to grind them to make them behave or anything like that. He wanted to know something. This is tender. This is real. Why? Why? Why should there be unity in your fellowship? Why should there be unity in your church? Why should there be unity in your assembled body of believers that meets in your locality? It's absolutely precious to the heart of Christ. Absolutely, the most important work of the Spirit of God. It's their desire. And God is watching. And if I sow discontent, if I bring discord and and, uh, conflict, even by my attitude, if I bring that into the fellowship and the unity is marred, I'm sinning against relationship. Wow, that, that has spoken to me. We've seen it. I was telling someone today, we had a really, real serious issue come up. Can't tell you any details. And uh, we got a bunch of folks came together, and we met in this room, and we waited for everyone to come. And once everyone got there, there was only 17 of us, sisters included. And there's a lot more people, but this was kind of all that would show up with the details of letters that had been written. It was nasty. It was terrible. And it was splitting the fellowship. Discord was entering in through a letter written. We all got together. And I, I looked at these folks 
love them hundreds of hours of Bible study in their homes, on the colonies, in their homes after they left. And all that time, all those months, I said, why don't we do this? I said, why don't we show the Lord that we're in serious business here? I said, let all of us get on our knees. All of us. I said, let every one of us just forget who we are and just pour out our hearts to God. And they did. Every one of us. Everyone got down on their knees, pulled these chairs in this room we were able to use. They started to pray. And when they heard them sobbing, sisters and brethren included, sobbing, and the chairs were wet, and we prayed for an hour and a half. Can I tell you something? There was never another word spoken about the letter that was written and the discord and the conflict that it had brought up. It went away. God is interested in your fellowship. God is interested in your assembly. God is interested in your group of Christians. Might have all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed and might have everything lined up. But if there is that lurking serpent and he's slithering through and he's poking up here and he's poking up here and he's weaving in a little discontent, a little malcontent here, a little conflict over here, and let's stack the pies over here and let's not do this. Listen, there's a fellowship out east and they were starting to fight and fume. The carpet was getting old. And the hymn books were getting frayed. And they said, where should we get the new hymn books from? And, and what should we do about the carpets? And it, it became a conflict. The, the, the building had been paid off. And they said, let's do this. And argued about a color. And argued about the hymn books. And, and it was getting to a problem. It was a problem. One of those elders told me, he said, you know, he said, I came early to the building that night. He said, I had a little Chinese food, a little styrofoam container. So I opened the front door, locked it, a little... He said, the next door, I pushed it open. He said, I took my little bag with me. He said, I got in. I went, oh, no. And he looked up, cold winter night. A pipe is frozen. Started spraying. Guess what it hit first? Saturated and ruined all the hymn books. The water hit that counter where all the hymn books were, ruined them, all swollen fat like it was terrible. And he said the water rolled down and it went into the auditorium and it stained all the carpet and all the people's feet and marks. He said it just got sooty. It had been that way since Sunday. He said this was like Wednesday or Thursday. And it started to stink and it was mildewy. And he said, look, he said, I can't believe this. Call some other brethren. They can't cancel the meeting that night. The insurance company came in and guess what? They chose the color and they replaced the hymn books. Didn't cost anything. <laughs> and he said, you know what? The Lord preserved the unity of the fellowship and the bond of peace. By breaking a water pipe. Let's not let God break our water pipes. Let us, listen, I said this, I think, here last night. We are not growing, folks. I've had gospel meetings in ministry in 30 years in 86 different assemblies across this country, in the uh, U.S. mostly. And only one is growing. Only one that I've seen. Only one is growing from work that is being done and unity that is being fostered and maintained. And don't ask me where it is, so it won't be partial. Only one. The rest, they said, we're growing. Really? We picked up 24. Where? Oh, they moved in from such and such and such. That's not growing. I can tell you that where I'm going right now, we lost 24. Because they moved. There. <laughs> you see, listen. God is so interested. He is so interested at great cost. Very tender subject. Tomorrow night, we're going to look at what 